stitches, you're back in the so what zone. Ah, oh, I hate that, but I'm going to keep it in. I'm happy you're here. Welcome to So What. I'm Isabella Rosner, and today we're going to get into Hmong embroidery, specifically Pan Dao, spelled P-A-J-N-T-A-U-B, and Hmong story cloths. At the top of this episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to my friend and fellow PhD student in textiles, Emily Levick, for asking me many months ago at this point, when are you going to do an episode about Hmong story cloths? Well, here we are. As you can probably guess, Hmong story cloths are embroidered textiles that tell stories, obviously. And Pandao, you probably don't know what that is, but you will soon! Both types of embroidery are made by the Hmong people, who are an ethnic group who originated in central China and who now live in the southern provinces of China, as well as Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, eastern Myanmar, and a whole slew of other regions. I'll get more into who the Hmong are and what their story cloths and their pandao are all about in this episode, of course. But first, I gotta remind you about the So What social media pages so you can see some good, good Hmong embroidery for yourself. You can see images of these story cloths and pandao and a list of all the sources I used for this episode on the So What social media pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search at So What, that's S-E-W-W-H-A-T, podcast, and you'll find it no matter what social media platform you're on, just not TikTok. The podcast also has a website with images, links, and other fun delights, which is at SoWhatPodcast.com. Okay, now on to the reason why we're all here today, Hmong Pandao and Story Cloths. I will start by giving you an overview of the Hmong, who they are, and their migration before getting into Hmong textile traditions more generally. From there, I'll go into Pandao and then Hmong story cloths, going through their materials, uses, imagery, and importance in today's world. Cool? Cool. Let's go. The Hmong, and that's spelled H-M-O-N-G, the Hmong are an ethnic group who speak their own language, also called Hmong. In the past few centuries, they have been persecuted, unfortunately, a whole lot, which is obviously incredibly tragic. It is thought that the original home of the Hmong is in the Huanghe, or Yellow River, the Huanghe Basin of central China. In the 18th century, they were driven southward by the Han Chinese, an ethnic group that was expanding throughout the region. This led to armed conflict and big migrations from the 18th century or even late 17th century through the late 19th century. During the Qing dynasty, the Hmong were the subject of persecutions and genocide, unfortunately. In the face of all of this, the Hmong migrated to Southeast Asia, specifically to Laos and Vietnam. In the 20th century, the Hmong in Vietnam and Laos were farmers. Now, what happened to the Hmong throughout Southeast Asia in the 1970s is a bit confusing, so I will keep it very simple here, probably at the cost of some parts of the Hmong's story. Very sorry in advance for that. So, during the Vietnam War, many Hmong fought against the Viet Cong and communist forces in Laos with the support of the United States. When the U.S. withdrew from Laos and Vietnam, the Hmong were forced to abandon their homes and seek refuge in Thailand. It was actually there that Hmong story cloths began, but we'll get into that a bit later. After the Vietnam War, many Hmong refugees resettled in the U.S. 
The biggest Hmong communities in the U.S. are in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and California. As you can imagine, after a history of migration and resettlement, the Hmong diaspora is really widespread. Here are some interesting numbers for you. I just thought they were very fascinating, and these are from Encyclopedia Britannica. So according to Encyclopedia Britannica, there are 2.7 million Hmong still in China, 1.2 million in the mountainous regions of northern Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, and eastern Myanmar, more than 170,000 in the U.S., 15,000 in France, 2,000 in Australia, 1,500 in French Guiana, 600 in Canada, and 600 in Argentina. Fascinating, right? That is a massively kind of diverse and widespread diaspora. And we love knowledge. We love numbers. It's the more you know. Shout out to Encyclopedia Britannica for a super great overview of the Hmong, which I've relied on heavily for this little Hmong summary. So now that we know who the Hmong are, we have to ask, what are their textile traditions? We have to ask it. This is a textile podcast. Pandao and Hmong story cloths, the two embroidery traditions we're looking at today, have to come from somewhere, right? Yes, indeedy they do. And can I just say, before I get into this section, a huge shout out to the website, which is mungembroidery.org. And that website is a result of a collaboration between the Hmong Cultural Center and the Hmong Archives in St. Paul, Minnesota. That site has so much excellent detailed information, and I am much more informed about Hmong textiles because of it. I would recommend you go visit the website yourself. So first, I'll talk about Hmong textiles more generally, and then I'll get into the iconic Pandao and Hmong story cloth. When it comes to an overview of Hmong textiles, Wikipedia, my one true love, is the place to be. Shout out to the Wikipedia. I've learned so much from it. Okay. First off, when it comes to Hmong textile traditions, we gotta go into hemp cloth. Most traditional Hmong textiles were made with hand-spun hemp fabric. The hemp would have been grown by small family farms or community farming plots and were then processed by Hmong women. The hemp was then dried in the sun before it was stripped and separated into shorter lengths of kind of hemp fiber. And those shorter lengths were then hand-twisted into longer lengths that were then woven on a good old wooden loom. Often, this hemp fabric would be the ground fabric for Hmong batik. And batik, for those of you who don't know, is a resist-dyeing technique in which hot, toasty wax is applied to cloth to create a fun little pattern. The cloth is then dyed, oftentimes it's dyed with indigo dye, and the wax is then taken off. And the waxy areas of the cloth resist the dye, so what results is a dyed fabric with a pattern that is left undyed. Does that make sense? So what you get is basically an indigo blue cloth and a pattern made out of white undyed bits. Delight. Batik is a dyeing technique usually associated with Indonesia, but they are not the only culture to use batik. Clearly. I'm going to spell the series of words that make up Hmong batik in the Hmong language for you because I unfortunately do not know how to pronounce this at all. I know that the first half is pandao because that is a phrase that I have seen elsewhere on the internet and have seen, have heard pronounced, but there's no tools for me online that I have found that can pronounce, that can teach me how to pronounce Hmong. So I'm going to spell what batik is for you instead. So batik is pandao and pandao is spelled P-A-J-N-T-A-U-B. 
and then it's two words that read N-R-A-J space C-I-A-B or C-A-B. And that is Mung Batik, but unfortunately I am not going to try to pronounce it because I actually think that I will exclusively offend people if I try. Batik in Hmong culture involves white hemp fabric, beeswax, indigo dye, and a tianting, which is a pen-like tool which is used to apply the scorching hot wax onto the ground fabric. Hmong designs for batik are usually geometric in nature. And Hmong batik is used to decorate things like skirts, baby carriers, and other decorative textiles. Now, I should say something here that is relevant, I think. So there are several main groups amongst the Hmong who live in Southeast Asia. And they are the white Hmong and the green or blue Hmong. And these two groups lived in separate villages, spoke different dialogues, rarely intermarried, and had different forms of women's dress. The list goes on and on. These are two quite distinct groups amongst the Hmong people. The names, green mung, white mung, etc., refer to the colors and patterns of each group's traditional clothing. So like the white mung women historically usually wore a white pleated skirt. So what's important here is that batik is utilized by the green slash blue mung, but not the white mung. Hopefully that makes sense. The mung also traditionally wove baskets known as kaum. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It is K-A-W-M. And these were used to transport farming goods or as general containers for various things. They were made using bamboo and rattan and were woven by men rather than women. The dudes are basket weaving! Look at them go! Okay, now that we have gone through Hmong textiles more generally, we gotta get into the embroidery. It is why we are here today after all. So, to the first of our two areas of focus in this episode, which is the Pan Dao. And as I have said earlier, and I'm going to say again, that is spelled P-A-J space N-T-A-U-B. So the Pan Dao, which translates directly to flower cloth, is a traditional type of Hmong embroidery stitched exclusively by women. Pan Dao is an embroidered square that includes symbolic imagery related to family, nature, or folklore. A Pan Dao usually involves stitches like cross, chain, running, and satin, but also things like applique, reverse applique, and batik. What results are very stylized geometric motifs that vary between region and tribe. Some of these motifs, these symbols include things like a double shell snail, which represents marriage, and a rooster, which is a symbol of protection, and I am obsessed with that. I love it. These pandao motifs decorate things like skirts, headdresses, shirt collars, sashes, baby carriers, funerary textiles, and a whole slew of other things. So now I'm going to read a large amount of text from mungembroidery.org, as I already mentioned, my favorite website in the whole wide world. And I'm doing this because it's a really incredible overview of pandao embroidery, okay? It reads, quote, According to oral history in the Hmong community, it is said that Hmong women hid the ancient Hmong Pandao script in the clothing of the Hmong people, especially in the pleated skirts of the green Hmong. From this time forward, the scripts became motifs or symbols in Hmong embroidery. Knowledge of the scripts was not so relevant in the lives of the Hmong and was eventually lost. Traditionally, Hmong embroidery is used as a form of decoration on clothing to make it bright and beautiful. Hmong embroidery includes bright colors, 
pinks, reds, greens, as well as blues, and these are sometimes used to contrast with the colors of yellow and brown overlaid with white. From a young age, Hmong girls learn how to sew and copy motifs from their mothers and grandmothers. As they grow older, the embroidery skills that the girls acquire through their female elders serve to make them more attractive marriage partners. Girls with impressive embroidery skills are admired for their potential ability to sew beautiful clothes for their future husband and family members. Furthermore, most girls sew their own clothes for the Hmong New Year's celebration. They dress up in their best embroidery clothes to be seen in public with friends and engage in courtship with boys through ball tossing and folk song singing activities. According to Shua V. Siong, consultant of the Hmong Embroidery Project, when a girl gets married, she is responsible for sewing clothes for everyday wear as well as new clothes prior to the Hmong New Year celebration for her family. On New Year's Day, a Hmong family wears their new clothes to celebrate the festivities. This is supposed to bring good luck, health, and prosperity. In addition, when a girl is married, her mother will give her a skirt or several skirts, depending on her social status or how much wealth her family has. Traditionally, the mother makes the skirts by herself and provides them to her daughter as a dowry. When the daughter becomes old and dies, one of these skirts will be worn at her funeral. In a related vein, a daughter is expected to prepare funeral garments called, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, it's T-S-H-O space T-S-H-I space S-A-B for her parents as they grow old. These garments are made of hemp cloth and put on the corpse of the parents when they die. In the spirit realm, the parents wear these hemp garments as they make the journey to meet their ancestors in the afterlife. Hmong clothes were originally made from hemp. Hemp is a very important plant, and the fibers of the hemp stalk are stripped, spun into fiber threads, and woven into cloth. It is then bleached and dyed into black or indigo blue. Hemp cloth that is decorated with batik and applique work is common among the green Hmong and often turned into pleated skirts. The undecorated dyed cloth is sewn into jackets and pants. White Hmong do not decorate their skirts. They are bleached and turned into white pleated versions. The cloth is dyed black and used to sew jackets and pants. Sometimes embroidery motif needlework is used as a decoration on the cuffs and placket fronts of jackets with embroidery stitches, batik, applique, or reverse applique, along with embellishments. Hmong embroidery has evolved to include Lao, Thai, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Western influences with the availability of different kinds of fabrics, threads, methods, techniques, and ideas. For instance, when the Hmong first arrived in the United States in the late 1970s, some of the families were initially resettled in Pennsylvania. While residing there, Hmong women learned a new style of applique techniques, quilting, from the Amish community. And just an aside here, this was discussed by Claire McRee in a previous So What episode, the overlap between Pennsylvania Amish quilting and the Hmong community. Anyway, back to the quote. The methods and techniques utilized for making Hmong clothes have changed over time. Items are not necessarily sewn by hand any longer. Cotton and synthetic fabrics are now preferred over hemp as the latter is heavy and difficult to find. Hemp is most commonly used for funeral garments in the contemporary era. Hmong motifs are copied and replicated into machine-made patterns with Hmong designs and motifs. 
These copied patterns are made into pleated skirts, cuffs, and the placket fronts of jackets, as well as accessories. As the Hmong continue to live in the United States, their lifestyles have changed due to employment and educational opportunities. Hmong women don't have the time to make embroidery as they once did in Laos. It is more convenient to purchase machine-made Hmong attire at the flea market or the supermarket. These items are relatively cheap and affordable. There are many new styles of Hmong attire, which do not resemble the regional Hmong clothes from the provinces of Laos. At the present time, many Hmong girls don't have the time and or opportunity to learn how to make pandao as their elders once did. Many elders do not have the time to teach traditions to their grandchildren. For the reasons above, the Hmong art of making pandao may be lost among future generations." End quote. My immense thanks go to Shai S. Lore of the Hmong Cultural Center, who wrote this extremely informative and fascinating summary of Hmong embroidery. I apologize that a large part of this episode is me just reading the writing of someone else, but the work that came out of the partnership between the Hmong Cultural Center and the Hmong Archives is written in a clearer, more succinct way than anything I could have written on the same subject. So I hope that's cool. I'm assuming it's cool. I hope you're still listening. Let's carry on. Now that we've learned so much about Pandao, it's time to get into the Hmong story cloth. As I mentioned earlier, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, tens of thousands of Hmong who stood against the Viet Cong and communist forces faced punishment and fled across the Mekong River to Thailand. These escapes were very harrowing and many didn't survive the journey. In the refugee camps of Thailand, some Hmong women began to stitch two-dimensional embroidered pictures in order to relay their experiences and maintain connections to their homeland. These are the Hmong story cloths. I feel like we've been waiting a long time to get here, and here we are. It's thought that the first Hmong story cloths were made by women at the Ban Vinai refugee camp in northeastern Thailand in the late 1970s. According to the trusty Hmong textile art Wikipedia page, quote, scholarship has suggested several possible competing theories, including the suggestion that refugee aid workers originally encouraged the idea of making embroidered pictures to sell, or that the story cloths developed organically out of exposure to English language illustrated textbooks and Chinese pattern books, or that the story cloths were a means to remember and communicate traditions and experiences often relating directly to the secret war and leaving Laos. Regardless, some level of Western influence is clearly present in the form of English text, and it is widely known that the story cloths were sold to international audiences, often with the help of missionaries and refugee aid workers. End quote. Hmong story cloths are often thought to be a form of pandao, but are different from them because story cloths include figures and fragments of text. Hmong story cloths, from what I've seen, are anything from like a foot and a half by a foot and a half to like eight and a half feet long. Some of them are absolutely massive. To make a story cloth, one first selects a ground fabric, and usually it's a blue cotton blend that seems to be the most popular choice. And then the artist draws images onto the cloth, which are then filled in with long satin stitches in a whole slew of thread colors, oftentimes very bright thread colors. Other stitches are then added to complement the satin stitches, and the central narrative is then framed by a border, which is usually triangles, which symbolize the protective highlands of Laos. 
Once the front is finished, muslin is then sewn to the back of the ground fabric. And that's how you make a Hmong story cloth. Obviously there's more skill, creativity, and knowledge involved, but that is a quick overview. The cloths usually feature lots of little figures and animals and trees and other natural elements. What results is a detailed scene of human life made miniature. But what kinds of stories are told on these story cloths? I know you are asking to the podcast right now. I know it. I hear it. Let's get into it. There are stories of living during war and migrating across the world, but there are also scenes from folklore and oral histories and even life on the farm. As Joshua Kwe writes about in a blog post called Asia Texts and Textiles at the Library of Congress Part 2, Hmong Story Cloths, that was a blog written for the Library of Congress, according to Kwe, there is a famous folktale that's often found on story cloths. And that story is that of Nao Naplai, I think I'm mispronouncing that, but that is phonetically how I'm reading it. That's N-O-U space N-P-L-A-I. Noun apply and Yer, Y-E-R, who were two newlyweds. And Kwe writes, quote, In this story, now Naplai escorts his wife, Yer, part of the way to her parents' home. Continuing on her own, Yer is kidnapped by a tiger, who, being very taken with her beauty, keeps her for himself. Now Naplai discovers what has happened when he arrives at his in-law's house and promptly sets off, sword in hand, to rescue Yer. He kills the tiger and husband and wife are reunited." End quote. Now, this might be a kind of insane thing to say, but the vibrancy of and figural depictions in Hmong story cloths remind me a lot of both Asafo flags from Ghana and R. Pieras from Chile. I've talked about Asafo flags in a past So What episode, but as a reminder, they are the regimental flags of the Fonte people of Ghana. And I will talk about Arpieras in a future So What episode. They are brightly colored patchwork pictures made predominantly by women in Chile, and they started as a result of the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. All three of these types of textiles, which are from opposite corners of the world, are not only united by their visual similarities, but also in their origins in war and violent conflict. All of these types of textiles, and I haven't really gone that deep into connecting them, I don't know if they're connected at all, but from a visual point of view, they all have lots of human figures, you know, in very active positions, in a very vibrant, bright landscape. And it feels very clear in all of them that from darkness comes this bright, rich embroidery. Hmong story cloths are present across a lot of museums, especially regional museums in the U.S. The Wikipedia page about Hmong textile art summarizes the use and significance of Hmong story cloths best, I think. It reads, quote, Although most story cloths seem to be created for international export and tourist consumption, many Western scholars and young Hmong Americans have found them to be highly valuable as teaching and learning devices and cultural artifacts. Today, Hmong story cloths often serve as a primary source that connects the diasporic Hmong community to its past, preserves and evolves traditional elements of Pandao, and helps raise global awareness to the experience and treatment of the Hmong during the Secret War and beyond. End quote. And now, as a note, to put it very simply, the Secret War, which I just referred to, is a war in which thousands of Hmong soldiers fought secretly under the United States' CIA 
in Laos during the Vietnam conflict. And what resulted was the unfortunate deaths of tens of thousands of Hmong people. So this is all to say that the creation of Hmong story cloths, their origin story, basically rises from the ashes of a huge people loss, a huge community loss for the Hmong. And that's really important to recognize. I think that that quote speaks so deeply to the power and importance of textiles as documents that we can learn from. Clearly, embroidery isn't just a series of pretty stitches. It's obviously way more than that. It's also a commemoration, a diary, and an educational tool. And also in this instance, it's not only a memorial, but also an opportunity to take stock of what just happened. Yeah, so there you have it. That is Hmong embroidery, focusing on Pandao and Hmong story cloths. That is not a positive way to end this. I am sorry to say. I suppose one positive spin on this is out of pain and suffering and violence and war comes textiles, comes stories, comes stitching. I think to conclude this episode, I'll talk about two themes I notice most when I look at a Hmong story cloth, and those themes are community and movement. Story cloths are populated with many, many figures. Go look at one, you'll see so many little guys. And they're all in the midst of some sort of action. They tell multiple stories at once, all on one surface, moving from scenes of war to crossing the Mekong River to going to the refugee camp to flying away to the U.S. and everything in between. People are walking, farming, bending, hunting, cooking, crossing rivers, you name it. The scenes blend together. It's like reading a picture book, but you don't need to turn the pages. You can't help but feel like you're witness to a sense of community when you view a Hmong story cloth. Figures in different scenes become cohesive, become part of a larger story. And as your eyes track the narrative across the cloth, from a corner to another corner or diagonally across the fabric, you feel the movement of not only the story, but also the Hmong people themselves. There are lots of types of embroidery that involve community production, many hands stitching together, but it's not so often you see community in an embroidery in the way you do on a Hmong story cloth. And though anyone who embroiders knows that movement is very much a part of that art, an intricate dance of arms and fingers always moving and grooving, you don't often see this much movement on a piece of embroidery either. Hmong embroidery brings these two really important parts of stitching, human connection and collaboration and bodily motion, to the surface. These things that usually go into the stitching come out of it on a Hmong story cloth. Do these ramblings make sense? I am not so sure. I hope so. This is all to say that I think that on a Hmong story cloth, embroidered figures dance across a ground fabric like a stitcher's fingers do. And in every stitch is so much life. And now that's all I've got for this episode. What a time we have had. I hope you've learned a lot. I've surely learned a lot. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode of So What? There's always more historical needlework goodness to explore and celebrate. Thanks for sticking around, and I'll see you soon. Now go out and stitch some stories and wow your friends with your new Hmong textile knowledge. Bye! Thank you.